forever. Dog. Hey y'all, my name is Alex Berg and welcome to the LGBTQ Nation podcast. LGBTQ Nation is the world's leader in LGBTQ news and commentary. And every week we focus on major topics affecting the queer community and speak with the nation's brightest thinkers, journalists, activists, politicians, and more. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, LGBTQ media and how and why we became journalists covering issues that impact queer and trans people and how we can make sure it thrives. We have a couple guests with different experiences, and this is a topic that I just love chatting about. But first, we're going to talk about a story that you won't see anywhere else except in LGBTQ media. The story of an actress, singer, and civil rights icon, Donzele Abernathy, whose name you should definitely know and will know after our conversation. LGBTQ Nation associate editor Juwan Holmes has a three-part series about this icon who grew up with Martin Luther King Jr. and was Kamala Harris's gym buddy. He joins me now along with Chris Bull, the co-founder and editorial director of LGBTQ Nation, who edited the series. Welcome, you two. Thanks, Alex. Hi, Alex. Thank you for having us. So to jump right in, Juwan, who is Donzele Abernathy and what is her connection to the LGBTQ rights movement? Donzele Abernathy is the daughter of Dr. Reverend Ralph A. Abernathy and Juanita Abernathy, who, if people um, have remember a lot of AP history or have studied Black history in their own time, they know that they were the closest associates for over a decade of the, the King family, specifically Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So Donsley is actually Martin Luther King's goddaughter. Their families were that connected. She grew up calling him Uncle Martin. It still does call him that. Um, even in our conversations, that's how she referred to him. So she grew up in the same time as the civil rights era was happening. You know, I guess it's peak in that sense in that it was all the things that we know about when we see in the movies, the March on Washington, the bombing of the 16th Street Church, the protests for the, the Poor People's March, all of those things happened by the time she was um, 12 or um, 13. And so, you know, and what I found especially important to, when telling this story was that how often we talk about the civil rights era as a distant time away or part of history, and for people like Don Delay, who's only in her 60s, um, this is very much, it is history, but it's very much also part of her life. It's as much a recent part of her life and important to her story as any other event that's happened since the 60s, the 70s. And she she carries the weight of her childhood with her and everything she does. So she is now a actress who has appeared in a lot of different movies and shows over 25 years. And that is on top of her activism as the daughter of a civil rights leader, philanthropy and the activism and the speaking she does to continue the lessons that she learned from her father and her uncle Martin and pass them on to this generation and the next generation. Now, why did you want to highlight her specifically from an LGBTQ perspective? That's a good question. I um, at first wasn't sure if it made sense to do that, I guess, when I first was um, given the opportunity to um, interview her. But I specifically wanted to ask her about what she thinks her kin, her family, her father, her uncle, Martin, all these people that she grew up with would have reacted to this moment or reacted to the LGBTQ movement in general or the LGBTQ community. Because that's not something that or when it is talked about, it's a very 
complex issue because, as some people will know, but a lot of people don't, Coretta Scott King, Dr. Martin Luther King's widow, and Yolanda King, his daughter, who was about the same age as Donzelay's sister, Wandalyn, and they were best friends growing up, as she tells us. Um, Yolanda and Coretta were very straightforward and not and especially for the 90s and the 2000s very at the front of the lgbtq movement among all people not 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 to mention just civil rights leaders who mostly did not deal with that topic even as it became a bigger thing post stonewall so and then we see also in this day age that we have um alveda king who is um dr king's niece i believe and um other family members and other civil rights leaders or descendants of civil rights leaders not be so affirming of LGBTQ rights or marriage equality or, you know, the humanity of LGBTQ people. So I felt it was very important to ask Don DeLay how she feels about this. I mean, a story that stuck out to me in the last few weeks was reporting on Angela Stanton King, who is not related to Dr. King by blood per se. I believe she's the goddaughter of Alveda King or something along that line. But she wears the King name with a, with pride and also is very known for attacking trans people, including mm. her trans child, um, and is very, uh, very straightforward and very clear about opposing um, mm. trans rights and mocking LGBTQ people. She's attacked people from Lil Nas X to, like I said, her child, and she has most recently been in the news for um, going to a drag bar and then accusing the drag bar of sexualizing children because other people bought children to the bar and allowed them to dance. It was the very, that was why I thought it was important to talk to Don Delay about these topics because as she's done recently, she did a, a, a choral project called The Listening. It incorporates speeches that Dr. King gave in his lifetime in his words and uses them to convey in a sort of... as. They made the she made the comparison and other people in the project made the comparison to a Hamilton esque um, message about activism, civil rights, and how the fight continues even beyond what Dr. King was dealing with in his lifetime. Yeah, Chris, it sounds like this is a necessary counterpoint to uh, some of the other individuals uh, that Juwan just named. Um, as you were editing this story, were there any anecdotes about Donzelay that jumped out at you? So it struck me. Don Zalea's decency and the way she kind of concluded the conversation with Juwan by saying the future is the overlap between the LGBTQ movement and the African-American civil rights movement, that it made it even bigger, more powerful and more diverse. And that was going to win over the trolls. You know, every community has their trolls. An African-American one does as well. And uh, but it's that's it's no match for the power of of the diversity of this movement when it comes together, as it is increasingly. And the other thing that really struck me about Juwan's reporting, which was remarkable, is that he came across a friend of Don DeLay named Brandy, a trans woman they became friends in the 60s and 70s and who was quite open about it for a long time. And Brandy's story is remarkable of working in the Atlanta clubs as a as a drag queen and a, and a trans performer and also as a makeup artist for stripper clubs, for straight stripper clubs. And just the, the way she was embraced by the Abernathy family 
really long before trans issues were mainstream as they are today. It was a really testament to that family, but also a testament to Juwan's reporting to bring that story out. Like, it's not a story we hear very often. It's kind of an untold story of the civil rights movement. It also feels so timely, especially as we've had just a crescendo of anti-trans legislation and uh, voices in the media um, that like to pretend that trans people are some modern invention to be able to have some history here that really connects the dots between, um, you know, this very important family in the civil rights movement showing solidarity with trans people. So I love hearing about that. Um, just quickly, before uh, we end this conversation, to the both of you, what do you think allies can learn from Donzelay's work and her family and your reporting? What's what's one big takeaway for them? Well, I'll first, I'll thank Chris for his kind comments. And yes, I do want to add, that was definitely something I did not expect at first. When I went to talk with Donzelay, I expected a more of a conversation just about her work and then just to ask her about LGBTQ rights to that, you know, sort of a straightforward answer on that remark. She was very, not only willing to talk about it, she wanted to talk about it and she wanted to emphasize the queer people in her life that she watched her father defend queer people at church. She watched her father and her mother welcome queer reverends and ministers into the church as um, leaders of one of the um, denominations of in the Southern Baptist movement, I believe. She said that she watches, watched so much of this in her lifetime and she lived with a gay man when she went to New York in the 80s. Then, you know, the story of Brandy that Brandy considers Don Delay her mentor. I was luckily able to, thanks to Chris and others, to further highlight that and continue to expand on that beyond just one article. And so I think the one thing I would want allies to take away from it or the importance of allies that is highlighted by this story is that it's not just saying the right things or being in the right place at the right time, but it is standing up for rights of not just LGBTQ people, but marginalized people all over that isn't always the mainstream or even socially accepted at all. I think everyone needs to come to a point where they realize the principles that they stand for and everyone will have a moment where they'll have to stand for them when it's it might not be the most sociably acceptable time or place to do it. And that's when the true allies are, you know, defined. Chris, final thought here. What do you think uh, allies can learn from reading a story like this about Don Zelay? Takeaway for me was the long arc of history that Don Zelay is, is only in her 60s. And she's in some ways, she's in her prime and just getting started. She was just in a Black Lives, Black Trans Matter march in Hollywood, for example. But that you can see this progression Often there's backlash to the progress we make, and she's seen really violent backlash. But through her, we can see that the long arc is progress and the defeat of backlash. Well, uh, our listeners can check out the series. It's called We Dream On. It is on LGBTQNation.com. Chris is going to stick around with us. Uh, Juwan, thank you so much for joining. Where can our listeners find you? Listeners can find me at LGBTQ Nation five days a week and on social media as Jawan, J-U-W-A-N, the curator, and Jawan, the writer on Twitter as well. I mentioned earlier that the story about Donzelay Abernathy could only be done justice at a place like LGBTQ Nation. 
So this is the perfect note for us to talk about LGBTQ media, I think. Chris is sticking around with us, and I'm so thrilled to have an all-around queer media maven joining us herself, Sakia Dorset. Sticking with us is Chris Bull, the co-founder and editorial director of LGBTQ Nation. And joining is Sakia Dorset, a filmmaker, director of the NBC documentary Stonewall 50, The Revolution. We have all been making queer media and covering queer stories for some time, albeit in different mediums. Um, Chris, you have written books, contributed to major newspapers, served as a national correspondent for The Advocate, and of course, co-founded the namesake of this podcast. Did you always want to cover LGBTQ issues? I remember uh, as far back as high school and growing up in Marin County, California, and sort of realizing that I was a little bit different than the other kids really depending on what at the time was kind of known as gay and lesbian media and kind of sneaking off to the library to look at back issues of the advocate and really feeling a connection to the community. The community was doing already, this was in the early 80s, I'm dating myself. You could see that the advocate was flourishing, had a lot of pages, People were doing amazing things. It looked like a good life that could be mine in the future. That was so important to me. I was also, you know, Marin County, California is a suburb of San Francisco. And the San Francisco Chronicle at the time was running a series called Tales of the City by Armistead Maupin, and which I absolutely loved because it was a very non-threatening view of LGBTQ life. Lots of sex, but lots of community, lots of great friendship, happy couples before marriage was even on the political radar. That was a really heartwarming series and gave me something to look forward to. And the Chronicle also was starting to do a really good job covering political activism. There was always great coverage of the Pride Parade. I'm like, I can't wait to be in that parade. That looks like so much fun. So I really wanted to, I was so inspired by queer media and by coverage of, of queer issues that I wanted to play a role in it. And so I quickly started doing as much journalism as I possibly could. I ended up uh, the editor of my high school newspaper, and I didn't feel comfortable enough to be out. To me, that was kind of like something that would happen in college. But I was able to work on the school's first ever sex survey. And I figured this is a way of like talking about the fact that not everyone is the same without having to be out myself. So we in the, in surveying students, we found that a fairly large percentage were already identifying as gay or lesbian. And with that became a story for us way back in high school. There were parents who were incredibly supportive. There were parents who were aghast that we would ask kids to check a box about sexual orientation. But it, it showed me the power of journalism to open minds and to change thinking. And that was sort of where it all started. Yeah, that's uh, always a good place to start. Uh, how did we get involved in covering LGBTQ? I think once you realize that there isn't a lot out there, you kind of have no choice. You need to figure out how to tell your story. You have to figure out how to amplify other voices. And so that is what it was for me. I had to figure out how could I give us more options because there aren't a lot. And I had to figure out how can I share more stories with others that don't know the intricate details of our lives and also don't know just 
how ordinary we are and also how extraordinary we can be. So for me, that was my inspiration with moving forward. Literally, the both of you are going to make me cry over here because what you both said was so beautiful. Chris, one of the things that you talked about was um, how you got started with your high school newspaper, which is also how I got into journalism. But that was even before I realized that I was queer. So it was like so not even a thought. You know, it's so far out that I would ever be writing or covering LGBTQ topics. But I think I I gravitated towards it for, I think, the reasons that both of you mentioned, which was that the coverage I saw of LGBTQ people, it was really moving and exciting to me. I was kind of wondering, how do I fit in with this community? And then also, Sakia, to your point, you know, I really had a hunger for content about LGBTQ women and about femmes in particular. So I felt like, hey, listen, if nobody else is going to be like a loud, sassy, bisexual on the air, might as well just, you know, have to try to do it myself. Yeah. And the bisexual stories are still, there's still a lack there. So, you know, when it comes to showing the nuances of that representation, that is so important. And femmes, because as you know, sadly, femmes are the last on the list. And so it is so important um, that we continue to amplify. Have you both seen the new Pride documentary that FX has put forward. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's a it's a mix of, you know, standard talking heads, some of the same folks that we covered in our documentary. And then there's some very interesting narrative pieces that they also have added, very deep dive into LGBTQ history. Um, so really highly recommended that I watch the first part, which was the 60s and 50s. And I think the second part is now going into Stonewall. So um, a really, really great watch. And, you know, FX, of course, pushing us forward with representations from Pose and now to a docu-series. It's really, really important. Well, Chris, it's so funny that you mentioned um, Tales of the City, um, because now I think like for young people, their Tales of the City reference is going to be the Netflix series. Um, how have you seen LGBTQ media evolve over the years? One of the things that I feel like I've noticed is I've been told so many times by editors outside of LGBTQ media that LGBTQ coverage, it's too niche. You're never going to be able to find a different story to cover every single day, which always blows my mind because it's so far from the truth and ridiculous. I feel like that attitude is getting a little bit better and more non-LGBTQ um, publications are, have finally wrapped their head around that actually there are infinite number of LGBTQ stories out there to cover. How have you seen things evolve over, over the years? I think you're absolutely right. It's LGBTQ filmmakers and journalists and creators just generally who are leading this conversation and the rest of the culture, whether it's FX or, you know, the New York Times have to catch up to us. And but on, at the same time, you know, I, my first job was at The Advocate in 1990. And at the time, it was really run by gay white men. And it was known as the Gay News Magazine. And there was a lot of pushback at the time, beginning, beginning at that time, to really diversify the coverage, to diversify the, the subject matter and the writers who were coming up with the subject matter and the leadership of the publication, partly because it was getting competition from other LGBTQ media, um, Outweek in New York, in New York City, which is a kind of a voice for 
the queer nation act up generation was much younger and more diverse. And so the advocate was kind of pushed in a more diverse direction. So it's, it's important to remember that we haven't always had the answers and we have to keep improving and changing with the times as well. I mean, I've, I've just absolutely loved seeing the transition from kind of the, the gay and lesbian movement to the LGBTQ movement, to the queer movement, to adding non-binary and, and putting trans people front and central to our media. That's been such an inspiring development as young people take, young and old, older people take what was developed, you know, a half century ago in entirely new and unexpected directions of liberation and freedom and equality. And I think that's that's a, a process that we have to, we're probably just at the beginning of that, frankly. There's probably more nuance and more complexity than even the three of us here know today. That's what's most exciting about this kind of media is the way it continues to evolve, lead, follow, but also lead. Yeah, I love the idea. I feel like there are stories that I did in like the mid to late 2000s of the early aughts. I don't even know what we're calling it, where I look back and I'm like, God, we've evolved so much. Wow. Why was my like language around that so clunky? And I feel like uh, it'll be fun in, you know, in a couple of decades to look back at the the conversations and stuff we're having now just to see where everything has gone. Sakia, I'm wondering, like, Having directed major LGBTQ films, um, is it hard still for you to get buy-in for those stories? Without a doubt. I mean, the fact that, you know, big media companies are putting money behind uh, films now is, is very interesting, but they are still the same stories. So, you know, we have five femme lesbians in the X century films. <laughs> we could have put one, you know, a bit of that budget to a trans film. We could have put a little bit of that budget to a BIPOC person of color story. So there is still a challenge with finding funds for queer stories that may be of color. You know, Pose is ending after three seasons, and I don't think it has to end. The BIPOC ballroom community hasn't ended. It's still going on. So this, it tells you something um, in regard to value. And the amount of money that you get is very different when it comes to these stories. So there definitely still is a fight to get the funds for queer stories. And I wonder if that's because the queer community sometimes can be segmented. And so it's very hard when you come to talk about who the market is to target a market per se, because there are so many, there's so much representation, so many different types of representation, you know, someone gets lost in that. So that's another thing that, you know, as filmmakers, we have to continue to almost kind of reinvent the marketing wheel for our films and reinvent the investment strategy for our films and the audience strategy for our films. So that within itself is a very complicated discussion to be had. 
So we have a long way to go um, as we expand more and as people's minds expand more, I feel like who our audiences will expand more. And, you know, when it comes down to what the investment uh, return is, we'll expand as well. So, you know, I look forward to the day where you're just not like, well, there's only, if you're only going to make a person of color film, well, only people, queer people of color are going to see it. Or, oh, if only this person is going to see it. Or who's going to be interested in that? It's, it, it, it's continuing to expand. So I feel like we're in a, um, an advent again, but we do still have a lot of learning and we still do still have a lot of educating to do when it comes to our media. The first thing I was actually going to ask you is, is do y'all have any newsroom war stories? But I feel like we've all been there and just had to go through the struggle of when you're in the mainstream media. And I feel like I've had editors just tell me like, Oh, but like we covered I, I, when I pitched like multiple different, and these are of course non-LGBTQ editors. And I've I've had to pitch stories about LGBTQ people, and they'll be like, "Oh, but like we just did a story about an LGBTQ person, so like why do we need to do another one?" I've I've literally had editors tell me that, and I'm like, "You do realize like one person doesn't represent the entire community or the story." Um, so I was going to ask you all that, but actually. I'm way more interested in knowing if you both have a favorite story that you've covered about LGBTQ people. A number of years ago, um, when Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House, his lesbian half-sister, Candace, decided that she needed to speak up about Newt's politics, which were extraordinarily anti-gay at the time. And Newt was really one of the people who created the threat to democracy that we see today with his kind of take no prisoners approach, his unwillingness to, to walk across the aisle, to understand the different perspectives and the multiculturalism of this country. And she knew that she needed to be a counterweight. And so she came out very forcefully and ended up um, being hired by the human rights campaign as a lobbyist. We got to, I did a cover story for The Advocate, and this was a the mid to early 90s. And we hit it off so much, just like everything that Newt isn't. Decent, soft-spoken, considerate. She was in a long-term relationship where Newt is famous for his, you know, betraying one wife to be with the next and betraying the family values he professes. And also for endorsing the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, which banned same-sex marriage on Candace's birthday. Uh, that was one of what? her s- stories that she told that was just so shocking that he was so insensitive to her that he would come out with that that bill at, at this precious moment in her life. Didn't even bother to call her and let her know that this was happening. Um, it's sort of wow. the, on the level of uh, Liz Cheney uh, betraying uh, Mary her lesbian sister, by uh, defending bans on marriage equality, even though she's socialized, Liz is socialized with Mary and her partner, Heather, many times, um, and really was accepting on that level, but then politically betrayed her. Yeah, Chris, I have to say, as you were talking about that, I my head did also go to Liz Cheney, just because of all the news about her recently. So, Yeah, I mean, I think one reason that LGBTQ pro- progress has been at least in the polls, I mean, we still have so far to go. We're really just beginning the march to equality. And there's so many parts of our community that are underrepresented in media. But I think 
having queer people within families has made it easier, even for more in the more conservative parts of the country to be accepting, which is why you've seen this enormous change from antipathy to equality to really support, um, even in the Republican Party. Candace wasn't able to make that case because basically her brother had a closed mind and it was not mm. going to happen. It was a wedge issue and it was his political ambition was more important than his half sister's equality and rights. But in general, we've made enormous progress. A publisher actually called after Candace was on the cover of The Advocate, asked me to put together a book with Candace. We spent a year together on and off putting putting her story together, which was her own. Remember, Newt had his contract with America. Candace kind of came up with her own alternative contract with America, which today I think is much more like the reality than than Newt's. I like that she was victorious in this long game, you know, on the right side of history. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a backlash right now that's quite scary with the attacks on democracy um, and voting rights. But I think if you look at the sweep of things in the end, she'll have won. Sakia, do you have a favorite story that you've covered? Definitely. I think when I was creating the Stonewall 50 documentary for NBC, I really pushed to try to have every single person represented. And one of the most challenging groups to fill was the Asian Pacific Islander group. I think it was challenging to fill not because it didn't exist, which is what we have to always remember. It's not because it doesn't exist that it's challenging for one person to fill. It's because we haven't stretched ourselves and made sure to know about that specific group. At the time I had started research and I found uh, Glenn Magpantai, who was a member of the National um, Association for Pacific Islander. In the middle of it, the group was fighting for the release of a transgender man with a campaign called Free Chin. And we were able to include that in the documentary, which was really great. I was able to meet Glenn Magpantai, who was a father, uh, and we met his son, a beautiful African-American boy, um, and sit with him and his partner. So that was great. And we were also uh, able to be a part of that moment and see a part that's really left out when the discussion is, is had about LGBTQ, which is the intersection of immigration. Mm. And uh, Chin was released from detention in 2019, and I actually want to follow up with that story. Um, but that was a really important part to put in the film and something that we always forget. And so uh, the intersections, I think, when we think about things to explore, it's not just kind of the surface of identity, but mm -hmm. how our identity intersects with other issues that come up. And as an immigrant myself, um, that's something that, you know, when it came to Asian Pacific Islanders, I did not think about as much, but definitely is a really big issue. And so uh, that was one of the, the folks that I was able to meet and very grateful for that. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I've loved about covering queer and trans stories are people who, when you can just find that perfect person or source who just, you know, is going to speak to an audience about something that could be a really complicated policy issue or someone who's like in the middle of such a flashpoint issue in the country. I know uh, there's... Uh, one one big story actually that comes to mind that I that I really uh, was so glad to cover was um, about women's rugby um, world rugby pushing out uh, trans women from being able to play and being able to talk to the trans women athletes who are by speaking to you in the media. This was a story I also did for NBC. You're, who are speaking to you about um, being against this policy and what this policy means for them, that it's going to bar them from playing this sport that they love and that they're risking so much. Like they are in coming out in the media and identifying themselves. That means that that rugby organization can target them and make it so that they can't play their sports. So I feel like, um, it's just, I feel like it's such a gift to be trusted, to tell these kinds of stories. Um, and also it can be really eye opening for people to read these kinds of stories, especially when there are so many different layers to them, or it's a topic that they haven't really been thinking about on that note, I'm going to stop waxing poetic about how much I love queer and trans people and covering our stories, even though I could go on all day, just to end things. Where do you all hope LGBTQ media is going? Where do you hope that we are all evolving to? What stories are you looking forward to covering or reading yourselves? I think it's I think it's sort of what Don Zale Abernathy said um, and you're referring to Juwan's uh, great story in the first segment here, which is the increasing power and representation of movements intersecting and coming together. That that in the long run, the civil rights movement, the LGBTQ movement becoming one and the same and overcoming divisions and obstacles. There's so much power in that to overcome the trolls on the right and the, the anti-democratic authoritarianism you're seeing on the right, which is really quite scary. It is much smaller. That movement is a powerful one, but it's much smaller and it's based on resentment. And if we can continue organizing and avoid divisions and come together, Don Zelay was basically saying, Juwan, you are the people like you are the future. And I think that's absolutely right. But we have to do our part in the media by telling those stories. I think the next couple of years are going to be critical and bringing people together by finding those sources and finding amazing storytelling that appeals to people across boundaries. Um, so that's sort of the key to to continuing the progress that we've seen. I think I'm looking forward to a lot more celebratory queer moments. You know, it's so great when we can celebrate each other. And, you know, while our issues are important, it's so wonderful when we have a win. And so I'm looking forward to way more wins, a lot more wins. And we can take a look back and see how far we've come. That would just like be amazing as well as <laughs> looking forward to a 365 approach with other media outlets to queer stories. Uh, I was in the, the Converse outlet and they had some pride sneakers on sale and I bought them and my wife goes, Oh great. You're ready for pride. And I said, no, I'm ready for my life. Okay. Because I'm not just wearing these shoes in June. All right. This is from January to December. 
that's what I want. That's how, that's how queer I want it to be. I don't want people to be like, oh, it's only June that we tell these special stories and we make sure that you're splashed on the front page. No, January, I want to be on the front page, February, March, April, May. So that's really what I'm looking forward to, a 365-day pride all the time, because that's how we live. I feel like that's the perfect note to end it on. And I have to say, thank goodness we have places like LGBTQ Nation that truly bring us that 365 LGBTQ coverage, you know, just 365, also 360 degrees, uh, you know, all aspects of our community. So thank you so much um, for joining. It was so much fun to have this conversation. Um, Sakia, where can our listeners find you? I am on Instagram at my name, S-E-K-I-Y-A Dorset, and uh, my website, sakiadorset.com. Thank you so much. Chris, beyond LGBTQ Nation, where can our listeners find you? Well, it's uh, basically Facebook is where I'm most active. So find me at Facebook under Chris Bull, C-H-R-I-S-B-U-L-L. Thank you. Each week after our discussion, I like to leave you with some good news. Everything is better when it's queer, and that includes cereal. Two months after JoJo Siwa came out, we learned that she was getting her own cereal line with General Mills. Well, it's official. It's called Strawberry Bops, and it'll be on shelves in time for Pride Month and then available permanently. Okay, so this might not seem very remarkable given that many corporations and products appeal to LGBTQ people during Pride. But I was uplifted because there was a time not long ago when coming out meant the end of a person's career. So seeing a teen come out and then continue making deals and expanding their career is pretty cool. Also, Strawberry Bobs is just the cutest name. Now, I'm just going to need some LGBTQ-owned milk and coffee because I personally want the coins from everything I'm buying to go into the pockets of an LGBTQ person. Congrats, JoJo. Now that I've left you with some joy, I want to wind down with gratitude. This episode wraps up our run of the LGBTQ Nation podcast. It has been a real honor and a delight to cover the biggest LGBTQ stories and topics for the past few months, from serious issues like the anti-trans bills across the country to chatting about our post-vaccine pride plans. A huge thank you to the staff at LGBTQ Nation, Q Digital, and Forever Dog for all of your work and collaboration. And of course, thank you to you, our listeners. Please make sure to support the LGBTQ Nation podcast. Listen to the archive, rate, and review our show right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please. And check out LGBTQ Nation every day at www.lgbtqnation.com. LGBTQ Nation has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. LGBTQ Nation is hosted by Alex Berg, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered by Katrina Henning, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Scott Gatz, John Halbach, Bill Browning, and Melissa D. Monts. Forever Dog. <laughs>